Amen. If you would, turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians 3.17, and we'll read down to verse, uh, well, to chapter 4, verse 1. So, here coming to the, uh, the end of Philippians, and we'll spend some time in the summer going through uh, some of the Psalms. So Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you may help us to continue to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would look to those who have gone before us, and that we would also look to those around us. It's a means of encouragement for our own personal lives to continue to stand firm. That you would help us to those ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is your life worthy of imitation? If you had someone following you for 24 hours, you know, what would they learn about your life? What would they take from your life? Just by watching you, just by hearing you? Some of you already have that, right? You have children who watch everything you do and copy everything, almost everything that you say, the good and the bad. Elena has learned to, to suck her teeth, and she says that she got that from me. I didn't even realize that I sucked my teeth. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, earlier in chapter 2, he pointed us to two individuals whose life are, is worthy of imitation, and that was Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, I don't know if these individuals, these two brothers, would consider them, their lives worthy of imitation, the thing about that question is that when we think about that question is that it immediately forces us to think about ourselves in a way that we may not want to think about ourselves. Right? Even as I ask you the question, you might think, no, my life is not worthy of imitation because you immediately think about the bad. You think about the tendencies. You think about the habits that you wish were changed. You might think about your sins. It forces us to think about those things. Uh, these two individuals in chapter 2, Timothy and Epaphroditus, right, they've given us as kind of an examples to follow, and certainly they're not perfect examples, so we know that because, well, they're just like us. They're believers, 
They're followers of Jesus Christ who still have lingering sin, who still have temptations, who still have trials, and right, you and I don't always do the right thing. Now, when this letter was first penned, right, the church was still very early in its, in its inception. It was, the gospel was still pretty relatively new, and so Christians needed to have an example to follow. What does it look like to live as a Christian in a world that is hostile to the gospel? What does it look like to live as a Christian when being a Christian is very new? Now, over 2,000 years later, with us standing here today, right, our context is very different, but it doesn't mean that we do not need models or examples to follow, especially as we continue to live in a world that is hostile to the gospel or live in a world that lives very differently than gospel living. So as we come to this passage, we can summarize the passage in just three main exhortations. The first, that we must keep our eyes on the godly. Second, that we must keep a heavenly mindset. And lastly, to stand firm. So, verse 17 Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul here is pointing to himself as an example of somebody who is worthy of imitation. I think he's also pointing to Timothy and Epaphroditus. There might have been other nameless individuals, but most likely it's a reference to these three individuals. Now what is it about their life that makes their life worthy of imitation? What example do they leave before us? What we see in their lives, even just in the little that we know about Timothy and Epaphroditus, is that they, their lives showed a pattern of righteousness. Now, if, as, we look, as we look to imitate the lives of those who show a pattern of righteousness, one thing is absolutely critical, and that is regeneration. Right, That they have experienced uh, the second birth, that they were born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're not looking to imitate or follow the example of just anybody. We're not looking to imitate the life of somebody who is generally a good person, somebody who is a virtuous person, somebody who is a pious person. Although that's well and good. But no, as Christians, we look to follow the example of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ whose lives are centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who believe in, the, in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That is absolutely necessary because the lifestyle of one shows that their citizenship is in heaven, while the other, who might be a generally good person or pious person, they'll live as one whose citizenship is in heaven. Very, very different. One is not of this world, but is called to live in the world, and the other is in the world, and because they are a part of the world. But as Christians, we are no longer a part of the world. And so what are some tangible examples of this righteous living that we see just in the letter of, of Paul to the Philippians? Some of the examples that we see that is worthy of imitation is a willingness to, re to renounce all that one has in order to follow Jesus Christ. Whether Christ is the greatest uh, treasure, the prize of the Christian life. There's a willingness to give up any pursuits of what the world 
understands as public recognition, honor, prestige. A willingness even to suffer with Christ and suffer for Christ. It is the willingness to make sacrifices and even sacrifice your own self in order to serve others, just as Christ served us even to the point of death, not that we're called to go to a point of death. But we put our lives on the line in order to serve others. A display of humility, right, as we see in Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 6 and following, when Jesus shows an example of humility coming down from heaven to earth, living as a human to die on the cross, for our sins. Another example is to give yourself to gospel work, ministering to the saints. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. What is the example that Christ leaves before us? That Christ suffered on account of righteousness. That is, when faced with the threats of persecution, when faced with the threats of even of his own life, Jesus did not compromise on righteousness. And that is the example that is set before us. John 13, 15, Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is given in the context of the foot washing when Jesus gets on his knees and washes the feet of his disciples. What's most important to him is not that we, that we follow the example of foot washing, but that we follow the example of his heart. And a heart that showed humility. A heart of service. 2 Timothy 1.13 tells us, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right, just like a child not only mimics or copies the actions of our parents, but it's also the words as well. So we also are to follow the example of sound living, but also the pattern of sound words. Anybody who is in the Bible on a regular basis, who gives themselves to the Word of God, who gives themselves to the listening of sermons, who gives themselves to hearing the Word of God coming from the lips of other Christians, eventually, over time, develops that same language as well. So we follow the example of those who live out their heavenly citizenship, citizenship in word and in deed. We keep our eyes on them. And it's not with kind of like a, a magnifying class to, in order to, to critique or to analyze someone's life, everything that they do, but we keep on our eyes on those who are models of, of godly examples to see the good that is in their life, to see the things in their life that is worthy of imitation, that we want to imitate in our own lives as well. Right? Because nobody is perfect, right? Nobody is sinless. Even the Apostle Paul, even though he says, follow me or imitate me, it doesn't in any way say that he's perfect. I'm sure that there are things in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul that we not, would not want to imitate. But we look to the lives of godly examples and see the good in them, see the fruit in them as things that we want to copy and imitate in our own lives as well. Now in verse 18, so we're told to keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 18 gives us the reason why. For many 
of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So there's a sense of anguish as Paul writes these words. And it could be either because the people he's describing are individuals who pose a significant threat to the church. So he says these words in anguish, or it could be, most likely, I think, he's referring to those who were once Christians, or maybe even continue to proclaim themselves as Christians, but their lifestyles show something completely different. Even in that sense, they still can pose a significant threat to the church. And he says, keep your eyes on those whose lives are worthy of imitating because there are many individuals now who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That is, that they show a different example, a different kind of pattern, not a pattern of righteousness, but a pattern of unrighteousness. They're leaving a pattern that others might follow, and it is their intention that others follow as well. And the reason why we want to follow godly examples is because they will always lead us to the right destination. The enemies of the cross, on the other hand, it tells us that their end is destruction. In the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, right, Christian and hopeful are on their way to the celestial city. Right, and, their, and their journey to get there is sometimes strenuous, sometimes it is difficult. Now, they both come to a particular path that seems, looks like it's a really easy path, a really nice path. Hopeful is a little cautious. He, he expresses a kind of a soft warning, but they both decide to go in this particular direction, and everything seems well and good. They come upon another fellow who's also on his way to the celestial city. And he says, yeah, I'm on my way there. Follow me. And so they all go together. They follow this individual, and soon the journey gets very perilous. They're filled with a darkness, a darkness with a degree that they almost cannot see what's in front of them. And the individual who's supposed to be leading them ends up walking over, I think it's a cliff, and ends up plummeting to his own destruction. The individual's name was Vain Confidence. Right, and such is the pattern of living that the Word of God is warning us about. Individuals who express a vain confidence in their particular way or course, but its end leads to a destruction. Now, what kind of example are these enemies of the cross displaying? So it says that their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. In other words, they take pride in and even boast about these things that they should be ashamed of, things that are disgraceful according to the scriptures, right? Because that the word disgraced or shameful is defined very differently today. But according to the scriptures, it's a very shameful, disgraceful kind of living. And they do such disgraceful and shameful acts freely, without remorse, without regret. They give themselves over to these things. And they even boast about them to other people. And what exactly are they doing? Well, again, it says that their God is their belly. And I don't think that's intended to be literal, but more figurative. Not referring to physical hunger, but referring to appetites, to cravings of the flesh. These are 
professing, these are perhaps professing Christians who are more earthly, carnal, fleshly, instead of spiritual. It's not a concern so much about their theology, but a concern about their ethics. They might say that they believe in the gospel. They might be able to articulate the gospel in a way that makes sense, that is in accord with the gospel itself, but their lifestyle shows something completely different. Something is wrong with their ethics. They use the gospel as a license for sin. Right? Romans tells us, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? These individuals in the passage would say yes. We should continue in sin so that grace may abound. Or we should continue in sin because grace abounds. There's only more grace. Grace is greater than all our sins. That is absolutely true. But there is a misusing and abusing of the grace of God as a license for sin. Right? You might know individuals like that, maybe family members perhaps, close friends who might profess, gospel in the, profess in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but their lives show that they don't actually follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They show that they are not actually citizens of heaven, but are citizens of the earth. And we are warned about looking to the examples of those individuals because they can be pretty enticing to see their freedom, to see the things that they can do and do, right? But we should not be enticed by their lifestyle. They have an attachment to the world. The great three theme of their lives is Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And the most loving thing that we can do in those relationships is to continue to share the gospel and lovingly and gently right, call them to repentance. So we have to keep our eyes on the godly. And we also have to keep a heavenly mindset. Keeping our eyes fixed on the godly as examples to follow, they not only teach us how to live as citizens of heaven, but they also remind us that our citizenship is in heaven. They remind us that although we live in the world, we're not a part of the world. They remind us that there is a great hope that is coming for us. Because you and I both know now, living as Christians requires a great, great, great deal of patience. As we wait for the Lord, as we struggle with sin, as we face various trials, and as we continue to wait, sometimes it feels like the world and its temptations is kind of taking a chisel and just slowly and repeatedly just kind of chipping away at us, bit by bit by bit, and it tries us, attempts us. As Christians, we bear the image of Jesus Christ, but sometimes it feels like the world is trying very hard to deface that image. And so we get impatient, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get upset. 
but the Word reminds us to keep our eyes on godly examples so that we may follow their example of patience and peace during times of trials. Or because we don't wait for nothing. But we have an assured hope that Jesus Christ will one day return. And so we wait patiently. The gospel reminds us that Christ has not left us as orphans. If you believe in Jesus, the Son of God who came to the world, lived as a perfect human being, committed no sin, died on the cross, rose from the dead, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in that gospel, that gospel also assures you that you are not alone, that Christ will one day return, and he will unite you to himself. And so we have to keep our minds fixed on the Lord. The thing that we do when we are fixing our eyes on godly examples is essentially we are fixing our eyes on Christ. Because anybody who follows a pattern of righteous living because of the gospel of Christ are doing so because Christ is living in them. Essentially what we're seeing is Christ lived out in that person. And fixing our eyes on Jesus reminds us that Jesus is coming. It helps us to maintain that heavenly mindset that this world, that our trials, that our temptations, that all these things that we struggle through is only temporary. We keep our eyes focused long enough on Christ. We will see what we desire to see. Right? Moses desired to see the glory of God and only saw a glimpse of it. James, Peter, and John saw the transfiguration of Jesus, saw him in his glory, but you and I will one day see something much more magnificent than, than what they beheld. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you realize that you love and believe in a Savior that you have not seen with your physical eyes? You've never shaken his hand. You've never embraced him. And yet you love him and you believe in him, and that is faith. There's a promise there in 1 Peter 1, if you continue to believe and love the Savior that you have not seen, that one day you will see, and he will complete the salvation that he has started in your life. There's an old hymn that says, With joy we wait our king's returning from his heavenly mansions fair, And with 10,000 saints appearing, we shall meet him in the air. Oh, may we never weary watching, never lay our armor down until he come and with rejoicing give to each the promised crown. Oh, wondrous day, oh, glorious morning, when the Son of Man shall come, may we with lamps all trimmed and burning gladly welcome his return. Rejoice, rejoice, our King is coming. And the time will not be long until we hail the radiant dawning and lift up the glad new song. Amen. And what will be our cause of joy is not only seeing the king return, but it is also that the king will come with a transformation. If we focus on Christ, the scriptures promises us that we will become what we behold. 1 John 3 tells us, Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will become like the Lord. The Christian life is not only a life that requires great patience, but it requires self-control, requires a great deal of discipline, requires a great deal of resistance. The Scriptures promises us that resistance will one day give way to rest and relief. Even though we are no longer enslaved to sin, Right, sin still tempts us. It annoys us. It bothers us. It's like that annoying little sibling who keeps poking at their older sibling. You know what that's like. Or maybe you were that younger sibling. Sin is absolutely annoying, isn't it? Pestering us, bothering us. But the promise of the gospel tells us that when we behold the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that sin will no longer bother us. Not only will we not be able to sin, but we will not even want to sin. This is all by the power of God. Ephesians 1.19 speaks to that incredible power says, Ephesians 1.19, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe according to the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That is the power of God. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in your life right now and it's the same power that will bring about a glorious transformation when you behold the Lord Jesus face to face. And there's some close parallels in our passage to Philippians 2, 6 to 11. That speaks about the humility of Jesus Christ and his coming to the world. Right, the heavenly, the glorious, the majestic, the one who is full of honor and prestige comes down into the world and takes on a lowly body, a lowly body like we have, yet without sin. And we, as those who bear a lowly body, will be transformed into a glorious body. The glorious Jesus Christ, who has authority over all things, who is sovereign over all things, comes into the world and subjects himself to human authority, subjects himself to a human body, even to a shameful death. And we, giving up what the world considers personal ambitions and glory and prestige and honor to instead subject ourselves and live as servants of Christ, serve one another, will one day give way to an honor that we will receive at the return of Christ. Right, just as Christ submitted himself and then was exalted. So in the same way, we submit ourselves with the hope that we also will be exalted. Of course, not in the same degree, because Jesus is Jesus. He's the Son of God. But exalted and honored we will be nonetheless. 
And so we keep our eyes fixed on the godly. And we maintain a heavenly mindset, remembering, focusing on the hope that is coming to us. And in this way, lastly, we stand firm. We stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand firm as we look to the examples of others. We see the example of the Apostle Paul. He says, imitate me. Later, or in a different letter, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. The example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what kind of examples do they leave for us? Timothy, for example, shows a pattern of looking to the interests of others, counting others more significant than himself, devoting himself to gospel work. Epaphroditus, right, who is a fellow brother, fellow soldier, fellow worker, messenger, and minister, who went out of his way to deliver this package to meet the needs of the Apostle Paul and even came to a point of sickness to where he almost died. And the point is not to follow his specific example, but to follow or to imitate his heart, the willingness to sacrifice oneself in order to meet the needs of others. So these are some examples that we are looking to follow, examples that we are looking to imitate. Now this idea of imitation and following and patterns is kind of a theme in the New Testament, whether you, I don't know if you realize that or not, and I don't know if you've ever considered the examples, the many upon many examples that we read just in Hebrews chapter 11 alone. Hebrews 11 is an incredible, incredible chapter. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that particular chapter. Now, I know that it's, it is long, but I think it is worth reading. And just paying attention to the examples that these individuals leave before us. Hebrews 11 Pick it up in verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and he became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself, received power to conceive even she even she was put even though she was past the age since she considered him that is God faithful who had promised 
Therefore, from one man and from and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand in the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. There's an example. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict, that edict which commanded the Hebrew midwives to slay the the lives of any Hebrew male that came out of the womb. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's an example for us. He considered the people, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to their reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the, danger, of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and, the sprinkled, and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who made the strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, 
that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That is the example left for us. Those are the examples left for us. And it's not to say that they were not sinless individuals. Oh, they had their sins, right? David committed adultery and killed the the woman's wife or husband. Samson had his issues. Abraham lied multiple times and gave his wife up and to spare his own life. I mean, these individuals had a lot of issues but they're still commended to us because they were individuals of faith who continued to look to, look to the reward, who continued to look to the promises of God, set their, 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 their sights, their minds on this heavenly city that does not belong to this world, even though in their lifetime they did not receive it. They set their hopes in it. And so we look to the examples of these individuals. We look to the pattern set before us. Not only to the example of those who came before us, but we look to the example also of one another as well. The thing about that question of, of is your life worthy of imitation, where we tend to think of the negative things about us and say, no, our lives are not worthy of imitation. But we have a tendency to think less of ourselves. But when we do that, I think it is a disgrace to the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I don't believe, if I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I do, then I do not believe for a second that there isn't any good in you that is worth imitating. Because the good that is in you is in you because of the transformative gospel that has become central to your life. Some of you might be more disciplined than others. Some of you have a self-control that I wish I had. Some of you are much more thoughtful than others. Some of you are very intentional. Some of you are very sympathetic. Some of you have fruits of the Spirit in, in a greater degree than others do. Some of you have different gifts than others. And we look at each other's lives, not, as though, not to be envious, but to be thankful to the Lord, but to also see those things, commend you for those things, and seek to imitate those things. We look at the good at one another because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see, I see, and we look, and we see, I see this in you. And man, I want to be more like this. I am praying for this. And when we look to each other, we look in each other's lives in that way. As I said before, we're essentially not seeing you were seeing Christ, seeing Christ in the person because Christ is the one who makes those changes in the person. So essentially we're setting our eyes upon Jesus Christ when we look to one another in that particular way. And so we, there are things that we have in our lives that are worthy of imitation and we should be transparent 
right, and invite others to look into our lives and see those things and not be ashamed of them because it is the gospel that has made that work in you. And so we praise the Lord for that. We keep our eyes on those things. We continue to look to examples of one another and of others in order to help us to stand firm in the gospel. And we continue to have a heavenly mindset as we continue to strive together in the gospel of Jesus Christ.